Guy Mannering or the Astrologer by Sir Walter Scott. Volume 1 Introduction. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1. Tis said that words and signs have power, or sprites in planetary hour, but scarce I praise their venturous part, who tamper with such dangerous art. The Lay of the Last Minstrel. Introduction. The novel or romance of Waverley made its way to the public slowly, of course, at first, but afterwards with such accumulating popularity as to encourage the author to a second attempt. He looked about for a name and a subject, and the manner in which the novels were composed cannot be better illustrated than by reciting the simple narrative on which Guy Mannering was originally founded, but to which, in the progress of the work, the production ceased to bear any, even the most distant, resemblance. The tale was originally told me by an old servant of my father's, an excellent old Highlander without a fault, unless a preference to Mountain Dew over less potent liquors be accounted one. He believed as firmly in the story as in any part of his creed. A grave and elderly person, according to old John McKinley's account, while travelling in the wilder parts of Galloway, was benighted. With difficulty he found his way to a country seat where, with the hospitality of the time and country, he was readily admitted. The owner of the house, a gentleman of good fortune, was much struck by the reverend appearance of his guest, and apologised to him for a certain degree of confusion which must unavoidably attend his reception, and could not escape his eye. The lady of the house was, he said, confined to her apartment, and on the point of making her husband a father for the first time, though they had been ten years married. At such an emergency, the laird said, he feared his guest might meet with some apparent neglect. Not so, said the stranger, my wants are few and easily supplied, and I trust the present circumstances may even afford an opportunity of showing my gratitude for your hospitality. Let me only request that I may be informed of the exact minute of the birth, and I hope to be able to put you in possession of some particulars which may influence, in an important manner, the future prospects of the child now about to come into this busy and changeful world. I will not conceal from you that I am skilful in understanding and interpreting the movements of those planetary bodies which exert their influences on the destinies of mortals. It is a science which I do not practice, like others who call themselves astrologers, for hire or reward, for I have a competent estate, and only use the knowledge I possess for the benefit of those in whom I feel an interest. The laird bowed in respect and gratitude, and the stranger was accommodated with an apartment which commanded an ample view of the astral regions. The guests spent a part of the night in ascertaining the position of the heavenly bodies and calculating their probable influence, until at length the result of his observations induced him to send for the father and conjure him in the most solemn manner to cause the assistants to retard the birth if practicable, were it but for five minutes. The answer declared this to be impossible, and almost in the instant that the message was returned, the father and his guest were made acquainted with the birth of a boy. The astrologer on the morrow met the party who gathered around the breakfast table with looks so grave and ominous as to alarm the fears of the father, who had hitherto exulted in the prospects held out by the birth of an heir to his ancient property, failing which event it must have passed to a distant branch of the family. He hastened to draw the stranger into a private room. "'I fear from your looks,' said the father, that you have bad tidings to tell me of my young stranger, 
perhaps god will resume the blessing he has bestowed ere he attains the age of manhood or perhaps he is destined to be unworthy of the affection which we are naturally disposed to devote to our offspring neither one nor the other answered the stranger unless my judgment greatly err the infant will survive the years of minority and in temper and disposition will prove all that his parents can wish but with much in his horoscope which promises many blessings there is one evil influence strongly predominant which threatens to subject him to an unhallowed and unhappy temptation about the time when he shall attain the age of twenty-one which period the constellations intimate will be the crisis of his fate in what shape or with what peculiar urgency this temptation may beset him my art cannot discover your knowledge then can afford us no defence said the anxious father against the threatened evil pardon me answered the stranger it can the influence of the constellations is powerful but he who made the heavens is more powerful than all if his aid be invoked in sincerity and truth you ought to dedicate this boy to the immediate service of his maker with as much sincerity as samuel was devoted to the worship in the temple by his parents you must regard him as being separated from the rest of the world in childhood in boyhood you must surround him with the pious and virtuous and protect him to the utmost of your power from the sight or hearing of any crime in word or action he must be educated in religious and moral principles of the strictest description let him not enter the world lest he learn to partake of its follies or perhaps of its vices in short preserve him as far as possible from all sin save that of which too great a portion belongs to all the fallen race of adam with the approach of his twenty-first birthday comes the crisis of his fate if he survive it he will be happy and prosperous on earth and a chosen vessel among those elected for heaven but if it be otherwise the astrologer stopped and sighed deeply sir replied the parent still more alarmed than before your words are so kind your advice so serious that i will pay the deepest attention to your behests but can you not aid me farther in this most important concern believe me i will not be ungrateful i require and deserve no gratitude for doing a good action said the stranger in especial for contributing all that lies in my power to save from an abhorred fate the harmless infant to whom under a singular conjunction of planets last night gave life there is my address you may write to me from time to time concerning the progress of the boy in religious knowledge if he be bred up as i advise i think it will be best that he come to my house at the time when the fatal and decisive period approaches that is before he has attained his twenty-first year complete if you send him such as i desire i humbly trust that god will protect his own through whatever strong temptation his fate may subject him to he then gave his host his address which was a country seat near a post town in the south of england and bid him an affectionate farewell the mysterious stranger departed but his words remained impressed upon the mind of the anxious parent he lost his lady while his boy was still in infancy this calamity i think had been predicted by the astrologer and thus his confidence which like most people of the period he had freely given to the science was riveted and confirmed the utmost care therefore was taken to carry into effect the severe and almost ascetic plan of education which the sage had enjoined a tutor of the strictest principles was employed to superintend the youth's education he was surrounded by domestics of the most established character and closely watched and looked after by the anxious father himself the years of infancy childhood and boyhood 
passed as the father could have wished. A young Nazarene could not have been bred up with more rigour. All that was evil was withheld from his observation. He only heard what was pure in precept. He only witnessed what was worthy in practice. But when the boy began to be lost in the youth, the attentive father saw cause for alarm. Shades of sadness, which gradually assumed a darker character, began to overcloud the young man's temper. Tears, which seemed involuntary, broken sleep, moonlight wanderings, and a melancholy for which he could assign no reason, seemed to threaten at once his bodily health and the stability of his mind. The astrologer was consulted by letter, and returned for answer that this fitful state of mind was but the commencement of his trial, and that the poor youth must undergo more and more desperate struggles with the evil that assailed him. There was no hope of remedy, save that he showed steadiness of mind in the study of the scriptures. He suffers, continued the letter of the sage, from the awakening of those harpies, the passions, which have slept with him, as with others, till the period of life which he has now attained. Better, far better, that they torment him by ungrateful cravings, than that he should have to repent having satiated them by criminal indulgence. The dispositions of the young man were so excellent that he combated, by reason and religion, the fits of gloom which at times overcast his mind, and it was not till he attained the commencement of his twenty-first year that they assumed a character which made his father tremble for the consequences. It seemed as if the gloomiest and most hideous of mental maladies was taking the form of religious despair. Still the youth was gentle, courteous, affectionate, and submissive to his father's will, and resisted with all his power the dark suggestions which were breathed into his mind, as it seemed from some emanation of the evil principle, exhorting him, like the wicked wife of Job, to curse God and die. The time at length arrived when he was to perform what was then thought a long and somewhat perilous journey to the mansion of the early friend who had calculated his nativity. His road lay through several places of interest, and he enjoyed the amusement of travelling more than he himself thought would have been possible. Thus he did not reach the place of his destination till noon on the day preceding his birthday. It seemed as if he had been carried away with an unwanted tide of pleasurable sensation, so as to forget in some degree what his father had communicated concerning the purpose of his journey. He halted at length before a respectable but solitary old mansion, to which he was directed as the abode of his father's friend. The servants who came to take his horse told him he had been expected for two days. He was led into a study where the stranger, now a venerable old man, who had been his father's guest, met him with a shade of displeasure as well as gravity on his brow. "'Young man,' he said, "'wherefore so slow on a journey of such importance?' "'I thought,' replied the guest, blushing and looking downward, "'that there was no harm in travelling slowly and satisfying my curiosity, "'providing I could reach your residence by this day, for such was my father's charge.' "'You were to blame,' replied the sage, "'in lingering, considering that the avenger of blood was pressing on your footsteps.' but you are come at last, and we will hope for the best, though the conflict in which you are about to be engaged will be found more dreadful the longer it is postponed. But first, accept of such refreshments as nature requires to satisfy, but not to pamper, the appetite. The old man led the way into a summer parlour, where a frugal meal was placed on the table. As they sat down to the board, they were joined by a young lady, about eighteen years of age, and so lovely that the sight of her carried off the feelings of the young stranger from the peculiarity and mystery of his own lot, and riveted his attention to everything she did or said. She spoke little, and it was on the most serious subjects. 
she played on the harpsichord at her father's command but it was hymns with which she accompanied the instrument at length on a sign from the sage she left the room turning on the young stranger as she departed a look of inexpressible anxiety and interest the old man then conducted the youth to his study and conversed with him upon the most important points of religion to satisfy himself that he could render a reason for the faith that was in him during the examination the youth in spite of himself felt his mind occasionally wander and his recollections go in quest of the beautiful vision who had shared their meal at noon on such occasions the astrologer looked grave and shook his head at this relaxation of attention yet on the whole he was pleased with the youth's replies at sunset the young man was made to take the bath and having done so he was directed to attire himself in a robe somewhat like that worn by armenians having his long hair combed down on his shoulders and his neck hands and feet bare in this guise he was conducted into a remote chamber totally devoid of furniture excepting a lamp a chair and a table on which lay a bible here said the astrologer i must leave you alone to pass the most critical period of your life if you can by recollection of the great truths of which we have spoken repel the attacks which will be made on your courage and your principles you have nothing to apprehend but the trial will be severe and arduous his features then assumed a pathetic solemnity the tears stood in his eyes and his voice faltered with emotion as he said dear child at whose coming into the world i foresaw this fatal trial may god give thee grace to support it with firmness the young man was left alone and hardly did he find himself so when like a swarm of demons the recollection of all his sins of omission and commission rendered even more terrible by the scrupulousness with which he had been educated rushed on his mind and like furies armed with fiery scourges seemed determined to drive him to despair as he combated these horrible recollections with distracted feelings but with a resolved mind he became aware that his arguments were answered by the sophistry of another and that the dispute was no longer confined to his own thoughts the author of evil was present in the room with him in bodily shape and potent with spirits of a melancholy cast was impressing upon him the desperation of his state and urging suicide as the readiest mode to put an end to his sinful career amid his errors the pleasure he had taken in prolonging his journey unnecessarily and the attention which he had bestowed on the beauty of the fair female when his thoughts ought to have been dedicated to the religious discourse of her father was set before him in the darkest colours and he was treated as one who having sinned against light was therefore deservedly left a prey to the prince of darkness as the fated and influential hour rolled on the terrors of the hateful presence grew more confounding to the mortal senses of the victim and the knot of the accursed sophistry became more inextricable in appearance at least to the prey whom its meshes surrounded he had not power to explain the assurance of pardon which he continued to assert or to name the victorious name in which he trusted but his faith did not abandon him though he lacked for a time the power of expressing it say what you will was his answer to the tempter i know there is as much betwixt the two boards of this book as can ensure me forgiveness for my transgressions and safety for my soul as he spoke the clock which announced the lapse of the fatal hour was heard to strike the speech and intellectual powers of the youth were instantly and fully restored he burst forth into prayer and expressed in the most glowing terms his reliance on the truth and on the author of the gospel the demon retired yelling and discomfited and the old man entering the apartment with tears congratulated his guest on his victory in the fated struggle 
the young man was afterwards married to the beautiful maiden the first sight of whom had made such an impression on him and they were consigned over at the close of the story to domestic happiness so ended john mckinley's legend the author of waverley had imagined a possibility of framing an interesting and perhaps not unedifying tale out of the incidents of the life of a doomed individual whose efforts at good and virtuous conduct were to be ever disappointed by the intervention as it were of some malevolent being and who was at last to come off victorious from the fearful struggle in short something was meditated upon a plan resembling the imaginative tale of sintram and his companions by monseigneur le baron de la motte fouquet although if it then existed the author had not seen it the scheme projected may be traced in the three or four first chapters of the work but further consideration induced the author to lay his purpose aside it appeared on mature consideration that astrology though its influence was once received and admitted by bacon himself does not now retain influence over the general mind sufficient even to constitute the mainspring of a romance besides it occurred that to do justice to such a subject would have required not only more talent than the author could be conscious of possessing but also involved doctrines and discussions of a nature too serious for his purpose and for the character of the narrative in changing his plan however which was done in the course of printing the early sheets retained the vestiges of the original tenor of the story although they now hang upon it as an unnecessary and unnatural encumbrance the cause of such vestiges occurring is now explained and apologized for it is here worthy of observation that while the astrological doctrines have fallen into general contempt and have been supplanted by superstitions of a more gross and far less beautiful character they have even in modern days retained some votaries one of the most remarkable believers in that forgotten and despised science was a late eminent professor of the art of legerdemain one would have thought that a person of this description ought from his knowledge of the thousand ways in which human eyes could be deceived to have been less than others subject to the fantasies of superstition perhaps the habitual use of those abstruse calculations by which in a manner surprising to the artist himself many tricks upon cards etc are performed induce this gentleman to study the combination of the stars and planets with the expectation of obtaining prophetic communications he constructed a scheme of his own nativity calculated according to such rules of art as he could collect from the best astrological authors the result of the past he found agreeable to what had hitherto befallen him but in the important prospect of the future a singular difficulty occurred there were two years during the course of which he could by no means obtain any exact knowledge whether the subject of the scheme would be dead or alive anxious concerning so remarkable a circumstance he gave the scheme to a brother astrologer who was also baffled in the same manner at one period he found the native or subject was certainly alive at another that he was unquestionably dead but a space of two years extended between these two terms during which he could find no certainty as to his death or existence the astrologer marked the remarkable circumstance in his diary and continued his exhibitions in various parts of the empire until the period was about to expire during which his existence had been warranted as actually ascertained at last while he was exhibiting to a numerous audience his usual tricks of legerdemain the hands whose activity had so often baffled the closest observer suddenly lost their power the cards dropped from them and he sank down a disabled paralytic in this state the artist languished for two years when he was at length removed by death it is said that the diary of this modern astrologer will soon be given to the public 
The fact, if truly reported, is one of those singular coincidences which occasionally appear, differing so widely from ordinary calculation, yet without which irregularities human life would not present to mortals, looking into futurity, the abyss of impenetrable darkness which it is the pleasure of the creator it should offer to them. Were everything to happen in the ordinary train of events, the future would be subject to the rules of arithmetic, like the chances of gaming. But extraordinary events and wonderful runs of luck defy the calculations of mankind and throw impenetrable darkness on future contingencies. To the above anecdote, another, still more recent, may be added here. The author was lately honoured with a letter from a gentleman deeply skilled in these mysteries, who kindly undertook to calculate the nativity of the writer of Guy Mannering, who might be supposed to be friendly to the divine art which he professed. But it was impossible to supply data for the construction of a horoscope had the native been otherwise desirous of it, since all those who could supply the minutiae of day, hour and minute have long been removed from the mortal sphere. Having thus given some account of the first idea or rude sketch of the story which was soon departed from, the author, in following out the plan of the present edition, has to mention the prototypes of the principal characters in Guy Mannering. Some circumstances of local situation gave the author in his youth an opportunity of seeing a little, and hearing a great deal, about that degraded class who are called gypsies, who are in most cases a mixed race between the ancient Egyptians who arrived in Europe about the beginning of the 15th century, and vagrants of European descent. The individual gypsy upon whom the character of Meg Merrilies was founded was well known about the middle of the last century by the name of Jean Gordon, an inhabitant of the village of Kirk Yetholm in the Cheviot Hills, adjoining to the English border. The author gave the public some account of this remarkable person in one of the early numbers of Blackwood's magazine, to the following purpose. My father remembered old Jean Gordon of Yetholm, who had great sway among her tribe. She was quite a Meg Merrilies, and possessed the savage virtue of fidelity in the same perfection. Having been often hospitably received at the farmhouse of Lockside near Yetholm, she had carefully abstained from committing any depredations on the farmer's property. But her sons, nine in number, had not, it seems, the same delicacy, and stole a brood sow from their kind entertainer. Jean was mortified at this ungrateful conduct, and so much ashamed of it, that she absented herself from Lockside for several years. It happened in course of time that, in consequence of some temporary pecuniary necessity, the good man of Lochside was obliged to go to Newcastle to raise some money to pay his rent. He succeeded in his purpose, but returning through the mountains of Cheviot, he was benighted and lost his way. A light glimmering through the window of a large waste barn, which had survived the farmhouse to which it had once belonged, guided him to a place of shelter, and when he knocked at the door it was opened by Jean Gordon. Her very remarkable figure, for she was nearly six feet high, and her equally remarkable features and dress, rendered it impossible to mistake her for a moment, though he had not seen her for years, and to meet with such a character in so solitary a place, and probably at no great distance from her clan, was a grievous surprise to the poor man, whose rent, to lose which would have been ruin, was about his person. Jean set up a loud shout of joyful recognition. "'Eh, sirs, the winsome good man of Lochside!' Light down, light down, for ye mona gang farther the night, and a friend's house say near. The farmer was obliged to dismount and accept of the gypsy's offer of supper and a bed. There was plenty of meat in the barn, however it might be come by, and preparations were going on for a plentiful repast, 
which the farmer to the great increase of his anxiety observed was calculated for ten or twelve guests of the same description probably with his landlady jean left him in no doubt on the subject she brought to his recollection the story of the stolen sow and mentioned how much pain and vexation it had given her like other philosophers she remarked that the world grew worse daily and like other parents that the bairns got out of her guiding and neglected the old gypsy regulations which commanded them to respect in their depredations the property of their benefactors the end of all this was an inquiry what money the farmer had about him and an urgent request or command that he would make her his purse-keeper since the bairns as she called her sons would soon be home the poor farmer made a virtue of necessity told his story and surrendered his gold to jean's custody she made him put a few shillings in his pocket observing it would excite suspicion should he be found travelling altogether penniless this arrangement being made the farmer lay down on a sort of shakedown as the scotch call it or bedclothes disposed upon some straw but as will easily be believed slept not about midnight the gang returned with various articles of plunder and talked over their exploits in language which made the farmer tremble they were not long in discovering that they had a guest and demanded of jean whom she had got there in the winsome good man of lochside poor body replied jean he's been at newcastle seeking for siller to pay his rent honest man but deal be licket he's been able to gather in and says gone in him we toom purse and sair heart that may be jean replied one of the banditti but we mun ripe his pouches a bit and see if the tale be true or no jean set up her throat in exclamations against this breach of hospitality but without producing any change in their determination the farmer soon heard their stifled whispers and light steps by his bedside and understood that they were rummaging in his clothes when they found the money which providence of jean gordon had made him retain they held a consultation if they should take it or no but the smallness of the booty and the vehemence of jean's remonstrances determined them in the negative they caroused and went to rest as soon as day dawned jean roused a guest produced his horse which she had accommodated behind the hallan and guided him for some miles till he was on the high road to lochside then she restored his whole property nor could his earnest entreaties prevail on her to accept so much as a single guinea i've heard the old people at jedburgh say that all jean's sons were condemned to die there on the same day it is said that the jury were equally divided but that a friend to justice who had slept during the whole discussion waked suddenly and gave his vote for condemnation in the emphatic words hang them all unanimity is not required in a scottish jury so the verdict of guilty was returned jean was present and only said the lord help the innocent in a day like this her own death was accompanied with circumstances of brutal outrage of which poor jean was in many respects wholly undeserving she had among other demerits or merits as the reader may choose to rank it that of being a staunch jacobite she chanced to be at carlisle upon a fair or market day soon after the year seventeen forty six where she gave vent to her political partiality to the great offence of the rabble of that city being zealous in their loyalty when there was no danger in proportion to the tameness with which they had surrendered to the highlanders in seventeen forty five the mob inflicted upon poor jean gordon no slighter penalty than that of ducking her to death in the eden it was an operation of some time for jean was a stout woman and struggling with her murderers often got her head above water and while she had voice left continued to exclaim at such intervals charlie yet charlie yet 
when a child and among the scenes which she frequented i have often heard these stories and cried piteously for poor jean gordon before quitting the border gypsies i may mention that my grandfather while riding over charterhouse moor then a very extensive common fell suddenly among a large band of them who were carousing in a hollow of the moor surrounded by bushes they instantly seized on his horse's bridle with many shouts of welcome exclaiming for he is well known to most of them that they had often dined at his expense and he must now stay and share their good cheer my ancestor was a little alarmed for like the good man of lochside he had more money about his person than he cared to risk in such society however being a naturally bold lively-spirited man he entered into the humour of the thing and sat down to the feast which consisted of all varieties of game poultry pigs and so forth that can be collected by a wide and indiscriminate system of plunder the dinner was a very merry one but my relative got a hint from some of the older gypsies to retire just when the mirth and fun grew fast and furious and mounting his horse accordingly he took a french leave of his entertainers but without experiencing the least breach of hospitality i believe jean gordon was at this festival footnote blackwood's magazine volume one page fifty four notwithstanding the failure of jean's issues for which weary far the wayful woody a granddaughter survived her whom i remember to have seen that is as dr johnson had a shadowy recollection of queen anne as a stately lady in black adorned with diamonds so my memory is haunted by a solemn remembrance of a woman of more than female height dressed in a long red cloak who commenced acquaintance by giving me an apple but whom nevertheless i looked on with as much awe as the future doctor high church and tory as he was doomed to be could look upon the queen i conceive this woman to have been madge gordon of whom an impressive account is given in the same article in which her mother jean is mentioned but not by the present writer the late madge gordon was at this time accounted the queen of the yetholm clans she was we believe a granddaughter of the celebrated jean gordon and was said to have much resembled her in appearance the following account of her is extracted from a letter of a friend who for many years enjoyed frequent and favourable opportunities of observing the characteristic peculiarities of the yetholm tribes madge gordon was descended from the fars by the mother's side and was married to a young she was a remarkable personage of a very commanding presence and high stature being nearly six feet high she had a large aquiline nose penetrating eyes even in her old age bushy hair that hung around her shoulders from beneath a gypsy bonnet of straw a short cloak of a peculiar fashion and a long staff nearly as tall as herself i remember her well every week she paid my father a visit for her orms when i was a little boy and i looked upon madge with no common degree of awe and terror when she spoke vehemently for she made loud complaints she used to strike her staff upon the floor and throw herself into an attitude which it was impossible to regard with indifference she used to say that she could bring from the remotest parts of the islands friends to revenge her quarrel while she sat motionless in her cottage and she frequently boasted that there was a time when she was of still more considerable importance for there were at her wedding fifty saddled asses and unsaddled asses without number if jean gordon was the prototype of the character of meg merrilies i imagine madge must have sat to the unknown author as the representative of her person footnote blackwood's magazine volume one page fifty six 
how far blackwood's ingenious correspondent was right how far mistaken in his conjecture the reader has been informed to pass to a character of a very different description dominie sampson the reader may easily suppose that a poor modest humble scholar who has won his way through the classics yet has fallen to leeward in the voyage of life is no uncommon personage in a country where a certain proportion of learning is easily attained by those who are willing to suffer hunger and thirst in exchange for acquiring greek and latin but there is a far more exact prototype of the worthy dominie upon which is founded the part which he performs in the romance and which for certain particular reasons must be expressed very generally such a preceptor as mr sampson is supposed to have been was actually tutor in the family of a gentleman of considerable property the young lads his pupils grew up and went out into the world but the tutor continued to reside in the family no uncommon circumstance in scotland in former days where food and shelter were readily afforded to humble friends and dependents the laird's predecessors had been imprudent he himself was passive and unfortunate death swept away his sons whose success in life might have balanced his own bad luck and incapacity debts increased and funds diminished until ruin came the estate was sold and the old man was about to remove from the house of his fathers to go he knew not whither when like an old piece of furniture which left alone in its vaunted corner may hold together for a long while but breaks to pieces on an attempt to move it he fell down on his own threshold under a paralytic affection the tutor awakened as from a dream he saw his patron dead and that his patron's only remaining child an elderly woman now neither graceful nor beautiful if she had ever been either the one or the other had by this calamity become a homeless and penniless orphan he addressed her nearly in the words which dominie sampson uses to miss bertram and professed his determination not to leave her accordingly roused to the exercise of talents which had long slumbered he opened a little school and supported his patron's child for the rest of her life treating her with the same humble observance and devoted attention which he had used towards her in the days of her prosperity such is the outline of dominie sampson's real story in which there is neither romantic incident nor sentimental passion but which perhaps from the rectitude and simplicity of character which it displays may interest the heart and fill the eye of the reader as irresistibly as if it respected distresses of a more dignified or refined character these preliminary notices concerning the tale of guy mannering and some of the characters introduced may save the author and reader in the present instance the trouble of writing and perusing a long string of detached notes abbotsford january eighteen twenty nine End of Volume 1 Introduction